0: Welcome back to Global Views, your favorite place in the airspace for all things language, communication, and culture. As always, I'm your host, Brie, and I'm coming to you live from Global Interpreting Services in Southeast Michigan. And today, we wanted to come back and talk about something we talked a little bit about last week. Last week, we had a conversation about language death. We you know, what happens when a language dies, what causes language death. What should we do about it? If anything, Uh, how do we feel about it? How does the global community feel about it? And We got to dive a little bit deeper into some work by David Crystal, an incredible linguist who's done work on language death, and just some general information, really got a basic understanding of it. But as we were going through this week, you know, combing through the news, finding out what's going on in the world in terms of language and culture, I came across two different articles, and they were both incredibly interesting and had everything to do with language death and what we talked about last week. And so I kind of wanted to pull them out and take these two languages. The articles are about two different languages. The first, is regarding actually language protests that are happening in China right now. Ethnic Mongolian groups are are protesting, uh, and we'll get into that in a second, but it has a lot to do with their language and their preserving their language. And the second article is about the Guarani language in Paraguay, and... Honestly, kind of almost the opposite here, but about how this indigenous language to Paraguay has kind of beat the odds and is still extremely prevalent and has an incredible amount of speakers and relevance still in its region really contends with its official national languages. So we'll take a look into these two because there's so many elements that we talked about last week that contribute, you know, that kind of are make or break in terms of whether or not a language is going to continue to be viable or whether it's at risk of becoming endangered or extinct or you know, dying out. And so we talked about a couple of those things. We talked about institutionalization, We talked about institutionalization, we talked about language as a culture and identity marker, Um, we talked about number of speakers, we talked about so many things, and the articles about these two languages and kind of the life that they're living right now very directly address those two things, and so I wanted to take some time here this week and share them with you because I think it kind of brings this topic to life Language death isn't just this quirky, highfalutin theory that uh, a group of people with horn-rimmed glasses sitting in a room came up with one day and thought, oh yes, language death, that's going to be a thing now. Um, That's going to be something that we talk about in academic spaces. It is a very real thing that happens today all the time, but very visibly in some cases and it interacts with so many different aspects of life. Uh, As we'll see in a minute here, it interacts so much with political happenings at times which is crazy to think about and maybe not as crazy as it should be but to think about language and politics being so closely intertwined or for something as seemingly innate as language to spark so much controversy i think is something very interesting to get to witness in our lifetime so we'll dive a, a little bit into those articles today so this first article comes from asia.nikkei.com And it says China arrests 130 ethnic Mongolians over language policy protests. Uh, Now, this caught my eye immediately because I think we've seen, you know, protests and unrest around the world for a number of reasons lately. But language policy is not something you often hear people up in arms about. I think especially if you are somebody who lives in the United States um, where we don't have an official language. I saw it and I thought, language policy what an interesting thing to see so much uproar over and so I clicked on it and I read it and I thought oh my gosh this is exactly what we've been talking about So I will give you a little bit of snippet from the article. Um, So this article specifically is detailing that there was 130 people arrested in the inner Mongolia Autonomous Zone region against compulsory Chinese language education in elementary and middle schools. Um, So that is what they're protesting against. So essentially what's happening in China right now is the institutionalized language is quickly becoming Mandarin. There are Mandarin classes that happen in China. Uh, that's the language that government operates in. Uh, it's the language I believe that business operates in largely. But there are many Mongolian speakers still left in China that are under Chinese rule, uh, whether you call it Inner Mongolia or Southern Mongolia. So the new policy that has been put forth And again, school children have Mandarin class at school, but the new policy that's being put forth is to teach three core curriculum subjects in Mandarin in all schools. There are still subjects that would be able to be taught in native languages and indigenous languages in Mongolian. Um, But there are three main subjects that are compulsory that they are looking to have taught specifically in Mandarin across the board. And there is uproar about it. So that is kind of what these protests are over. And you might be thinking, well, I don't understand what is the big deal, especially if you're still able to take classes in Mongolian we talked about last week that the institutionalization of a language is part of what proves its vitality. So maybe Mandarin is being institutionalized a little bit more heavy right now. But there is still institutionalization of Mongolian in China. So why is everyone so concerned? Uh, and I had this question myself because I thought, well, maybe that's not a great position for your language to be in linguistically. But uh, a couple of subjects in Mandarin aren't going to wipe out a language all at once. However, I think the people, I think, and, and several linguists would agree that perhaps the ethnic Mongolian population in southern Mongolia or inner Mongolia sees the writing on the wall. Though this act alone, though this change alone may not contribute to the erasure of, the Mo- of Mongolian as a language you know, so immediately, it, it definitely does kind of push the language back in terms of cultural relevance. So the three subjects that they are proposing to teach in Mandarin as opposed to Mongolian or whatever regional language it is that is spoken the three subjects are literature, ethics and law and history which i suppose to a degree you could argue that that makes you know sense to teach ethics and law in Mandarin since anything regarding ethics and law in China is most likely going to be in Mandarin what really is telling or what really I would be concerned about if I was a Mongolian parent who was not for this language switch who, who didn't want this to happen the one that would concern me is the literature because that's so much of where culture lies is in its literature and that's where a lot of that information that we talked about last week about grammatical structure and, and just those different features of a language that aren't necessarily captured in what words are indicating those are the details that are lost when a language is lost uh, so many of them come through so clearly in literature, most clearly in literature, whether it's Mandarin and Mongolian or one language and another, if you teach literature in one language and you're not teaching literature in another language, the language that you're teaching literature in is always going to be the most pervasive, I I think, um, is always going to be the one that is most widely understood, the one that has its nuance most widely recognized in that second language, not so much. Uh, There's a parent here being quoted as saying massive student hunts are sweeping the region. Even the most remote rural communities, the police presence is so heavy. Um, The entire southern Mongolia has been turned into a police state is what this parent has quoted. As of right now, five 0.98 million ethnic mongolians use the language for conversation and uh, supporting the culture passing that along and there is real growing concern in the community that children will lose their language skills if mongolian is phased out of education over time i think that's where a lot of the anxiety lies is that this is possibly a move to further phase out mongolian out of the education at some point down the road entirely even if it's not happening with this change right now with this educational reform right now i think the anxiety that is being encapsulated in a lot of these demonstrations um, that's being met with incredible force by the chinese government that the the actual goal is to phase mongolian out of education to and we know that once it leaves an institution its viability is really in danger um, because then it is not there there is not the incentive to know or practice or use a language that does not give you access to participating in society so unless that cultural hand is very heavy there is concern i would say there should be concern for, for mongolian And what this means for the language. But I do want us to just take a second to recognize how serious this is for so many Mongolian speakers. The level of these protests. And obviously China has a a different government structure and operation than what we're used to. But the, the level of severity of these protests. People are not sending their children to school over this mandate. Um, saying that, you know, that we don't want them learning in Mandarin. And so that is what that parent is referencing when she's talking about massive student hunts sweeping the region, even in rural communities. So it it sounds like, Government authorities are going and looking for students who are not participating in school because of this Mandarin policy. There have been, obviously this article is specifically detailing 130 people being arrested. But a non-governmental organization estimates that between four and 5,000 ethnic Mongolians have been put in some form of police custody over the last three weeks. Um, and that's, so that's all just to give you an idea of the severity of these protests, this is not, you know, a a small rally with some signs, this is massive demonstration and and action and consistent action, so that's all of that to say, you know, when we're talking about linguistics and, and language and culture and the way that those things intersect, it's not, even though linguistics is a language science, it is far from impersonal, you know, language isn't just a, a fun idea, it's a very real tool. And mm-hmm. so I think that kind of situates, you know, this very academic thing that we talked about last week, you know, language death, the book on it and, and what causes it and ideas about changing it or or preserving language or not preserving language and all those things, but in action language vitality and and language death and even the looming threat of things that could cause language death are very seriously taken once they're actually applied in real time. Now, I don't know how this policy is actually going to turn out in China. I don't have an understanding of Chinese government institution and legal framework and things of that nature. So I, I can't really say what's going to go. In my very unprofessional opinion, I think Mongolian will at least be okay for the long haul obviously they've got five almost six million ethnic mongolians using the language regularly um so that is one factor but we know as we talked about last time numbers are not everything and the other thing we talked about was it being a marker of cultural identity if a group understands that their their language as a marker of their cultural identity. They tend to keep a tighter grip onto it. They tend to want to invest more into it. Um, And I think that these protests are definitely proof of that sentiment. Um, It has not escaped the ethnic Mongolians in in China that this is a marker of identity. So even though there is a threat of deinstitutionalizing uh, these and and they're not even really institutionalized. They're just kind of allowed to be spoken in education. If that is the language that is majority in your area in your community, then that's probably the language you're learning in. So I do believe that Mongolian is is most likely going to remain in a, a safe place. Now that's not to say that that uh it should be phased out of the educational system by any means. So the institutionalization is being threatened, but that cultural identity is holding strong. And so we will see how things play out in China over the next couple of weeks and definitely the next couple of years. Now, speaking on cultural identities and markers of cultural identities and how that applies to language vitality, I want to move on and talk about this indigenous language in Paraguay. So this article that I got from The Guardian is about Paraguay Guarani. Guarani. That's how you say it, Guarani. Um, And Paraguay Guarani is an indigenous tongue. And it is thriving. It is spoken by some 70% of the population, use it as a main language, uh, which is interesting because the language that is largely that was largely attempted to be institutionalized in Paraguay is Spanish, like much of South America. But Guarani has managed to thrive, and so much of that is definitely, definitely attributed to... Um, this, this strong cultural identity that is identified with the language. And there are quotes from, from, you know, speakers of Guarani in this article, and they all kind of have a similar sentiment that language is culture. Um, That's actually the title of the article is Culture is Language, Why an Indigenous Tongue is Thriving in Paraguay. There's a quote here that says, the idea of a noble indigenous heritage is strong here in Paraguay, and can be expressed by most of the country's people in an indigenous language. So they absolutely identify it as a marker of their identity, and it has paid off. When there was an attempt to massively institutionalize Spanish, the the groups that spoke this language actually refused to learn Spanish, and so government officials had to learn to speak Guarani. And so even though official government business is conducted, in, in Spanish still, um, most government officials do know Guarani and Guarani has become the language of the economy in Paraguay because so much of uh, those indigenous groups are, are rural workers, you know, make up the workforce that that is the language that's spoken in the workplace. Now, there are several indigenous languages to Paraguay that have not had the same vitality as Guarani. Uh, The article doesn't really mention maybe what the difference would be. I don't know if there was the same. I don't want to say that there wasn't the same cultural fervor behind each language because I think and I know that there are Are organizations and associations working to revive some of those languages or to keep them from extinction because many are severely or critically endangered? And so there are groups that are working, you know, revivalists like we learned about last week. There are revivalists of some of those languages working to rehabilitate them. So I don't want to say that it was for lack of cultural fervor. But whatever the case may be, uh, not every language has had this success in Paraguay. However, Guarani has, for whatever reason it be. It might be because the the indigenous groups that spoke Guarani just refused to learn Spanish. (laughs) And kind of pointing back to that period where there was an attempt to make that linguistic shift in the country, Hans Kalisk, Kalish, Hans Kalish, I'm so sorry, I'm butchering your name. Uh, he's a linguist and a co-founder of an association promoting the NLET language, said that the shift away from indigenous languages is a lot of times, or was a lot of times, driven by discrimination. Han says here that people stop speaking their native languages in it, in an attempt to avoid discrimination, which is very reminiscent of the Lenca and Cacpera indigenous groups that we talked about last week in El Salvador who largely abandoned their languages after a massacre in 1932 that was an attempt to quell an uprising. Um, And so after that massacre, many people abandoned their indigenous language in that attempt to kind of protect themselves. So this is true. What he's saying is not, you know, is very universally recognized. This has happened all over the world. He says, but referring to speakers of guaraní guaraní in paraguay he says but they have a very clear awareness of that as a kind of betrayal of their own identity. So we know that they have embraced their language as a cultural fixture, as something that is a cultural marker, but I think that sentiment kind of indicates how deep really that is felt, that it is felt beyond the, the effects and the damaging of discrimination or from outside pressure. Uh, and so, again, just seeing language vitality and and you know language death versus language vitality playing out live you know the way that it really does impact our real world and then Miguel Verón who is a linguist says that another reason for the survival is because of the landlocked isolation of Paraguay and he does mention linguistic loyalty so again going back to one of the other factors that we talked about for language death is that isolation you know we, we talked about if a group uh, even if it's a group of small, a small number of speakers is generally isolated from the popular world, then there is a stronger chance that that language is going to live on. Um, and being landlocked definitely does contribute to that. You know, you don't have people coming in and out by water. And so that that does kind of insulate the culture and the linguistic culture. Now, because of the resolve of Guarani speakers to keep it relevant in Paraguay culture and in, in the public eye in Paraguay. Because of that, it is now there, there is now so much push for it to become uh, institutionalized over other indigenous languages in other areas of the world. Um, they have a Minister of Linguistic Policies and there is an attempt or their desire is to make Spanish and Guarante equal and protect other indigenous languages Uh, and this was an initiative that was began a couple years ago back around 2017-2018 from what I can tell and so that is the desire however that same Minister of Linguistic Policies has said that yes this is the desire but they there is not the funding available at this time to really effectively do that uh, because there are studies needed especially for these dying languages Um, there are there are so many studies needed there are so many resources needed in order to sustain those or to bring them back to life so those are two stories uh, kind of just giving us a better idea a better glimpse of what this idea of language vitality and and language death looks like applied to our real world because it is so much more action and so much more tension and, and drama and and I think with legitimate purpose. So much surrounding language. So when you're reading about it in uh, your textbook and you're, you're tired of your, lin, your Linguistics 202 class, just remember that these concepts, these ideas of language... Uh, that we kind of just like to sit around and talk about, especially on this podcast. Uh, They are very real, and they're rooted in people's lives. And um, there are people taking action on them all over the place. So that's a little bit on language death. I know we talked about doing a language autopsy series, taking dead languages and peeling them apart, seeing what we can get out of them from their culture and things. But I found these articles, and I just could not do anything else this week on the podcast so instead of a language autopsy we did kind of a we did a vitals check we did a vitals check on a couple languages and again in my very unprofessional linguistic and medical opinion uh, I would say you know definitely, as, as other linguists in this article have said. And I will, I will go ahead and link both of these articles onto our social media pages, so I'll make sure they're shared there. If you want to do your own research, if you want to keep up with what's going on in China, if you want to find out about the other indigenous languages and maybe how you can help if you're so inclined to... Um, to revitalize those in Paraguay Uh, so I will link those there for you and then you can kind of go do your own research whatever you'd like to do with those Uh, but we did a vitals check and in my again very unprofessional linguistic and medical opinion I would say that Mongolian is safe for now maybe we need to keep you know a a watch on it it's got some things it should look over um, some things it's actively trying to address, but Guarani is looking strong. Guarani is looking good, despite the fact that it is not the government language. At this point, I don't believe Um, it sounds like the legislation to do that is is pretty progressive so maybe at this point there have been more implementation in terms of policy surrounding the use of guarani but it is looking strong both in in linguistic loyalty you know that cultural identity marker and definitely it's heavy prevalence within their economy so there's a a fun little application for you um, I'm so glad that we got to sit and talk about these articles I think they're both incredibly important and I think there there really is no way to fully understand how serious language is to, to uh, a group of people until you see it play out live and we are actively in the middle of that right now so if you're interested I would say keep up there's still so much to be learned here I'm sure. Um, and maybe we'll do an update. Maybe we'll come back at some point if something happens you know, with, with this policy in China or if we hear more on Guarani or any of those other indigenous languages that aren't faring so well in Paraguay. And uh, we'll, we'll let you know what's up. We'll come back and give you an update. Uh, so that's our podcast for the week. If you had a good time, if you learned something new, if you enjoyed yourself, feel free to subscribe, uh, share it with your friends, play it in your car, make them all listen to it on your road trip. Uh, <laughs> I will, like I said, I will link those articles on our social media, uh, so they'll be on there, all of our social media. Uh, we're on Facebook for Global Interpreting Services, all of our other social media. You can find us at MyTerps4, the number four and the letter U. Uh, so that is our cast for the week. I hope you guys had as much fun as I did and we will see you next Friday.